go. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Film Club, a podcast about music biopics. I'm Kathleen Mahoney. I'm Ryan Major. And today we're talking about the 1989 movie Great Balls of Fire. Great Balls of Fire. Great Balls of Fire. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much of love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill. Great Balls of Fire is a biopic of rock and roll pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis. The film focuses on the early career of Jerry Lee Lewis from his rise to stardom in Memphis to his scandalous marriage to his 13-year-old cousin Myra, which led to his downfall. The movie is directed by Jim McBride, and it stars Dennis Quaid as Jerry Lee, Winona Ryder as Myra Gale Brown, his child bride, John Doe of the band X as J.W. Brown, Jerry Lee's bandmate and Myra's father, Trey Wilson as Sam Phillips, and Alec Baldwin, third billing in this movie, but not in it a whole lot, as his cousin Jimmy. Uh, uh, Jimmy Swagger, real figure. Real figure, which we will talk about. All right. And our guest on the pod today is our friend, Matt LaValle. Hi, Matt. Hi, how you doing? Hello, welcome, welcome y'all. The first thing, let me just say, the first thing that I wanna say on this podcast about Jerry Lee Lewis is RIP Little Richard. Truly the greatest, the the king of rock and roll for all time, the liberator. Long long live the king, the king is dead. The inventor, the emancipator, uh, bronze and brazen from straight out of Macon, Georgia, Little Richard, RIP. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I do want to talk about Little Richard as we we talk about the exact kind of historical moment when Jerry Lee took the stage. Um, But Matt is a man about town a public intellectual renaissance man um (laughs) and uh he is a in a dj group called cool kids club um that had a radio program and did some live shows around town among many other projects welcome first and foremost i am a 50s and 60s music nut which is why i insisted that the movie that we should talk about in this podcast is uh great balls of fire which we may refer to for short just as great balls yes Thank you. Uh, Thank you for uh, making that the standard early, early mm-hmm. in this episode. Yeah. Also, uh, so it, we should note that it, actually watching this movie <laughs> took a little more doing than any of the previous entries so far. Uh, you can't rent it. Yeah, not only, streaming, not available for rent or purchase. For reasons that become apparent throughout the <laughs> film. So Matt bought me a DVD and mailed it to my house and Ryan and I in the midst of this pandemic, organized a an in-person, socially distant handoff of the film. So I watched it about a week ago, so I'm a little rusty. I think my my notes are as sharp as they can be, but... Um, I watched it last night, I haven't spoken to anyone, so I remember it really well. <laughs> I watched it, uh, I saw it once a long time ago, maybe when I was like in my early teens or so. And I watched it twice in the past week and took copious notes and oh, did great. some background research too. Excellent, excellent. You good, good, good. Authority good. here. Um, had you guys seen it um, previously, Matt? You saw it as a kid. That, that's correct. I, I probably saw it when I was like uh, around like high school age somewhere. And there, 
are two scenes which I recall very clearly from it. One of them is the the great line uh, when Jerry gives his brother Jimmy his Mauve Cadillac. When when Jimmy Swaggart needs a car to preach, he gives he get, he just tosses Jimmy Swaggart the keys, and Jimmy says, "Praise Jesus!" And Jerry Lee says, "Don't thank Jesus, thank Jerry Lee Lewis." <laughs> I did write down that. Well, third person. Yeah, one yeah. of the many times he refers to himself in the third person. Oh, yeah. What was the other scene? Uh, you know what? I think we're going to cover it later if we're if we're okay. so un- unfortunate as to have to talk about it. But I have a feeling we're going to get there. All I'm, right. I, I'm I, sure we will. So I, I should talk about this. This is one of the earliest movies I remember seeing. Uh, really? For some reason, I was at my friend's house. Uh, uh, it must have been sometime before third grade at the latest because we were went to different schools after that mm-hmm. and uh you know we just had like kind of like a permissive single mom and we saw some things that were not really appropriate for small children mm-hmm. and i saw most of great balls of fire as a little kid and some of it on vh1 one time in my teens but um this is the first time i watched all the way through since that and i have to say i remembered it a whole lot clearer than i would have really? thought and uh also what was kind of weird about it was seeing it when i was too young to understand sex or have uh any kind of like you know like moral ethical function to my brain so i was just like oh it's a story about a man who plays the piano who made some controversial choices watching it now though (laughs) right right it was on vh1 all the time i definitely didn't see it in its entirety when i was younger but you know saw chunks of it many times on VH1. That must have been where, I, where I've seen it. it on yeah. VH1. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel all like the was, time. Yeah. All the time. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, let's talk about the real Jerry Lee before we get into the plot of the movie. Still alive. Still alive. He's somehow. been just, somehow, somehow. Uh, for a man who dabbles in lots of drugs and guns, he is still alive. Um, he has been described as rock and roll's first great wild man. But again, as noted, um, Little Richard was putting out albums before Jerry Lee. Um, he made his first recordings uh, at, in 1956 at Sun Records in Memphis. His hits include A Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, Crazy Arms, Breathless, and of course, Great Balls of Fire. Great Balls. And his career faltered significantly in the wake of his marriage to his teenage cousin. And then he sort of pivoted to country. Um, even though he was always influenced by country, but sort of like placed himself in the camp of country through the 60s and 70s. Um, and he topped the country Western charts for a while. And he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986. Um, and again, he's still alive. He had lots of personal scandals, even, you know, beyond marrying his 13-year-old cousin, which I hope we can touch upon as well. Um, all right. Shall we get into the movie? Oh, sure. <laughs> All right. Do it. So, uh, if I recall correctly, this one, like all of these, opens with uh, a young boy who we will soon learn is Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm-hmm. Always at the flashback. And yes. it's, he's with his cousin, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Swagger. Swagger. Mm-hmm. And they... Uh, they run off to a uh, a blues club and briefly watch the musicians. Jimmy uh, 
being, you know, in a movie like this, you have all of your personality traits from the get-go. <laughs> Jerry sees the music and he's and Jimmy's like, this is wrong, we should leave. Splits. Jerry's like, no, this is cool. Watches uh yeah. watches the rhythm and blues music. Yeah, you know, the camera seems to be looking mostly at the dancers, I have yes. to say. And uh uh, one of which, by the way, it was Rufus Thomas what? from Stax Records. Did you know that? I did, did not, not know, know that. that. Talk about good. Get some Memphis representation in there. Yeah, we the 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 cast of this movie, generally speaking, is extremely stacked, and Rufus Thomas, like not even making the marquee, is like is is one thing. Um, I noticed first of all, uh, the the dancing in the. That we refer, we return to the club in Faraday, Louisiana later on in the film. There are two club scenes. Yes. The this is a real thing that Jerry Lewis did, where he would sneak out of the house as a child, go to this club. He would perform there. He would take in the music there and, and learned a lot about playing the piano, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, I noticed that between the two uh, club visiting uh, scenes with Jerry Lee. The first one that starts off the movie has some really sexualized dancers at the blues club. Like it's a little bit out of control. Yes. And I, then we, I, yeah, <laughs> we, we, we come back like 10 years later and everybody at the club in Faraday seems to have calmed down and maybe gotten a little older or something. <laughs> Cause it's just, <laughs> just like, like not as out of control. The, the years caught up with them. I, yeah. I, I thought of what's the, uh, there's a line in walk hard where somewhere in there. It's like my patrons come here to dance erotically. <laughs> almost immediately yeah this is another movie that i think had a big influence on mockhard mm -hmm. um but it's i will also, say, no go ahead oh well just very quickly i mean we'll get to this in a bit but there is a scene a little later in the movie when jerry lee is actually playing music with his band at a predominantly like white country honky tonk and that place looks horrible compared that place looks mega fucked like why would anybody go <laughs> there i know the band had to play behind a fence so i thought that was a blues brothers reference i'm not sure that was that like a real thing they did that was probably a real thing uh i yeah. should say like returning to the, the the opening scene in the movie and it happens again incidentally at the at the roughest bar in the world or whatever the marquee says <laughs> in the place that this is the first of several occasions when someone asks jerry lee a question that he's expected to say no but he says, yeah. In this case, they're looking over, they're looking through the window of the club. And it's not really a question, but Jimmy Swaggart says, we got to get out of here. This is the devil's music. And Jerry Lee, the camera, closes in on his little tiny child face and he says, yeah. <laughs> Um, Which happens several times in this movie. And uh, introduces a theme. I wonder if this is one of your themes, Matt, but the tension between music and religion or specifically rock and roll and religion and uh protestantism between heavy rhythm and blues bass piano rock and roll and evangelical like yes yeah <laughs> i did in fact as i mentioned to my valiant uh the valiant host of this of the show uh before we started recording i i counted Four recurring themes in this movie, four things that happened over and over again. I did not count the yes, that only occurred to me later, but I did count the number of times when people referred to the devil's music and those scenes number four, of which this opening scene is the first. <laughs> Thank you for your, your vigilance. Um, no so, problem. 
So, I, I mean, it's pretty effective scene setting. And as always, we go from the one brief scene with the child. Uh, there's a great shot. It's, we see the, uh, the piano player at the bar's left hand, and then it, it's dissolved to Jerry's white left hand mm-hmm. and a piano at uh, his cousin's house. Yes. So at this point, Jerry 56. Lee... Yes, 1956. Um, Jerry, again, grew up in Louisiana, but he really wants to make it in music. So he moves to Memphis, uh, home of Sun Records, where Elvis famously put out his first records and was becoming a star. So Jerry Lee moves there in with his cousin, um, who becomes his bandmate, his bass player, and is the father of his future wife. Um, yeah, W. Brown. Yeah, so wait, yeah. Cousin, bassist, father-in-law. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. Business, father yeah. So J.W. Brown, played by John Doe. John Doe. Yeah, love John That's Doe, great. love X. Yeah. So uh, that brings me to, um, I really, I made a, I kind of made a total fool of myself in my own notes to this movie. <laughs> and partly, partly around John Doe, but, but, but mostly, like, as soon as, as soon as Jerry Lee, as soon as Dennis Quaid as Jerry Lee started playing and they played the songs on the soundtrack, I wrote in like huge letters in my notes, recording is bad, crazy arms, not as good triple underlined as Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, I see. as young Jerry Lee Lewis as it turns sure. out, because <laughs> as the credits tell us, the piano and singing is performed by the killer himself. Yeah, la- later on when they had the shame montage, I'm listening to the song that's playing over it, and I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, why is it like a Frank Sinatra? <laughs> it's a standard. Yeah, it's that lucky old son, right? I, no, I, um, I don't know what song it was, but I heard it, and I was like, wait a minute, that's actually killer, man. This, is, that, this isn't a, a cheap imitation. I also, in all, the, um, in all the band shots, I was like, this guy that got to play the bass like, is not a convincing musician like, <laughs> at all. <laughs> Learn how to play the bass, man. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, surprise! It's actually uh, it's actually a well-known bass player from the uh, well-regarded punk rock musical ensemble X. He, he is he has is, is proven himself a capable bass player over the yeah. past forty years. Surprise! <laughs> yeah, and and has the acting chops and the looks to be a believable nineteen fifties father bass player. Yeah, he already kind of looked yeah. pretty nineteen fifties. So uh, yeah, so. We also meet his wife. What was her name? Lois, I think. Myra Gale Brown. No, no. Oh, and his. Oh, yeah. J. W. Don't remember. I think it's Lois. Yeah, edit that one out. Jesus. It might be Lois. More importantly, though, we meet J. W.'s daughter, Myra Gale Brown. Thank you. Thirteen years old. Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder. How, how old was Winona when this came out? Winona was, was 18 really and um, Dennis Quaid was 34. So mm. bigger age gap than even reality where um, right. Jerry Myra, Lee was 21, 22 and Myra was obviously 13. Yeah, it doesn't really get any less icky from here yeah. on out. So it's good would, you guys, would you guys like to know how many times in this movie someone spoke a variation of She's only 13 years old. Oh man, I mean, I know Meyer herself says it, I think four times. What's the total? I counted seven, including some slight variations, which we can, which we can refer to later. Great. So what do you guys think about Dennis Quaid as 
as Jerry Lee, his acting, his look. I mean, I, I feel like he's got the wild man energy and bad boy charisma. Um, mm -hmm. I, thought he, I thought he looked good. I feel like he was almost certainly more like ripped physically than Jerry Lee was, but you know, it's Hollywood. Uh, I liked him. As a matter of fact, I, I have to say that I really liked a lot of the acting performances in this movie. Now I'm not too bright and I get easily taken in by this stuff. <laughs> so, so I kind of like all acting. But I, I, I thought I thought that uh, Grady was good enough. I thought Winona was excellent as Myra Gale. Oh was, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. She really threaded the needle between like childish and adolescent. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> and um, yeah. I really liked um, Baldwin, especially his his performance at the end of the movie as extremely sweaty, swagger. Yeah. <laughs> sweaty yeah. swagger. I thought it was great, um, especially Winona's, like her face is so good. Yeah, yeah. really captured that sort of She's got big wide expressive eyes, eyes wonder. Yeah. All right, so Jerry Lee and Myra, Jerry Lee already just like quickly establishes a like, you know, kind of predatory vibe with Myra and also some, uh, you know, expository dialogue informs us that he's previously been married twice and, uh, um, maybe still is, maybe isn't. He has the arrogance and bravado right off the bat. I mean, it's it is clearly just part of his his character, his person. But um, he moves to Memphis, kind of saying he wants to record a hit record just like Elvis. The first mm -hmm. of many mentions of Elvis. He this movie depicts him as constantly sort of living in Elvis's shadow. Um, mm -hmm. it's sort of this place that he aspires to be and the movie sort of says that he never will be there, but in real life they were friendly at this time. Um, in 1956, the Million Dollar Quartet recorded with Sam Phillips, which mm -hmm. was Jerry Lee, Elvis, Carl Perkins, and Johnny Cash in a sort of accidental happenstance um, recording session where they all just happened to be in the studio at the same time so sam sam phillips cut some tracks um so, so that was sort of overblown um for the movie but i think but that was even even then though it, it's like i feel like he doesn't really face much adversity it's it's a meteoric rise pretty much so he, he goes to sun records he records a demo he wants to give it to sam phillips sam phillips is gone for a couple of days sam phillips comes back he gives him the record we're in. <laughs> Straight to the top, baby. Ding, ding, ding. Um, so actually, Sam Phillips, he's a pretty big presence in this movie. Uh, he's played by Tra the late Trey Wilson. Trey mm -hmm. Wilson's final film. Nathan Arizona. Trey Wilson's final film. Uh, and the, the movie and the credits is dedicated to him. That's a real shame. I, I like him a lot. If, if, you, uh, look, if you check Trey's Wikipedia, it, it tells you that there are two movies um that are dedicated to to posthumously to, to trey wilson who died at about 40 years old the other one being silence of the lambs right neither one of them that mentioned wikipedia is great balls of fire there are actually three movies dedicated posthumously to, to Mr. Wilson. what was the third uh the third was miss firecracker mm. okay so <laughs> Uh, so we, we, we made Sam Phillips, who's, you know, uh, portrayed as sort of uh, rough, but um, he's got a good mind for business. And 
Then we meet his brother, Judd, who we actually spent a little more time with, played by the great Stephen Tobleski. Uh, Neil knows Ned from Groundhog Day. Hmm. Um, oh, love that okay. dude. He pops up a lot. He's also supposedly like has some ESP. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's cool. That's how he yeah. picks good movies. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Helpful for an actor. <laughs> something else. I think he's in like true stories or something. But um, so uh, they immediately recognize the potential in Jerry Lee, but also that uh, he he's an extreme liability because. Uh, Total he's wild a bad card. Boy. Yeah. He's a bad boy. Yeah, it's a nutcase. I mean, so, he's out of control. So, so this is where, uh, you know, um, his career takes off pretty quickly. And um, I, I, I feel like, um, is this when, when they go back to the, uh, the other club and he sees uh, Big Maybell saying a uh, whole lot of shaking going on? Yes. And that inspires yeah. him to kind of steal that song. Yes, yes. And that, so this is funny. It's like, oh, it's, we're making a movie about rock and roll in 1989. It's just like a matter of fact. It's like, well, we need to have a white artist do this. Um, and then also I thought, this is like, Jerry Lee's struggle to like get through to Sam Phillips is so, it, it's nothing. He, Sam Phillips is like, uh, oh, this song's too raunchy. And Jerry's like, come on, and they do it. Much like <laughs> earlier. When, when, sure. He's facing the the specter of anti piano bias. Uh, oh yes, yeah. <laughs> dude! There was a great shot where where he's getting out of the car. Jerry Jerry Lee and JW are getting out of the car, and and talking about how he wants to make a hit record. And the guy who's telling him to get lost because Sam Phillips is not there says, "Well, you play the piano." All the girls like guitar players, and she points at like a black dude carrying a guitar, and it's like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, yeah, yeah. is that code or what is that? Again, no mention of Little Richard who put out a wild piano record like a year before this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Jerry Lee came out of a vacuum. Like, come on. Right. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so we see him kind of steal a whole lot of shaking going on. And this is the scene where it's one of the first scenes we see him playing with his full band and it's again this like rowdy honky-tonk and he's playing behind a chain link fence people are throwing stuff but the performance whips the crowd into a frenzy mm -hmm. there is a woman just kind of in a trance dancing locking she, she's got a lot of uh what like fringe, fringe on her on fringe. her blouse so uh <laughs> when she get, gets to shaking it, it's very dramatic there's a lot going on a lot of shaking goes on i think it's important to point out that um there's a whole montage that we skipped over where, where Jerry, Jerry Lee has a big hit with Crazy Arms, which is a song by Ray Price. I and mean, you should look yeah, up the original if you don't know yes. it. Much better. <laughs> um, also, in recording, a uh, whole lot of shaking going on. Jerry is shown in the studio like trying to record a ballad, but the engineers at Sun like, they want nothing to do with it. They don't yeah. like a ballad. And oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> the great yeah. shot. The engineer just frowns no, and shakes his head at so. Sam Phillips. <laughs> no, no, no. Can't record uh, this. And of course, uh, if, if you go and listen to Jerry Lee's later career as um, when he was in like the country milieu, a lot, of, a lot of them songs are ballads. A lot of them are great. So. Yeah, I am not familiar with a lot of his country output. That is something mm -hmm. I want to check out. Yeah, we're going to, I should, maybe we should just acknowledge in here that we're going to be in a position 
as anyone talking about Jerry Lee or a lot of these rock and roll musicians, where we're going to have to praise the music and and condemn the dude. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> which is which is I, I guess as a as a as a as a you know oldies music fanatic is something that is a terrain that's kind of learned to walk. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's interesting is I this movie it's another one of these movies that doesn't really seem to while while it it doesn't celebrate him marrying marrying his teenage cousin, but it certainly doesn't it like demonize him in a appropriate like, oh, it's bad boy right right and i should also note that i was reading when this movie came out okay so it's 1989 a few years before this there was this big expose in rolling stone about jerry Lee lewis how he allegedly shot one of his wives it was like his fourth or fifth or sixth wife um most likely did it but this was pretty scandalous so he, he's already sort of you know, he's back in the limelight in a, to a degree for sort of being this controversial figure. It's not like they needed to make a movie about Jerry Lee Lewis. They, they, did they just pick like the least problematic chapter of his life and this is what they came up with? <laughs> he marries his teenage cousin. <laughs> the like, least well, problematic part. Yeah. Right. I think, um, I think what, what the movie accomplishes is that when you, when you read about something that is so, so far from the moral universe that you, that you occupy as, as being a, a rich and famous rock star getting married to your first cousin once removed who is like way underage, you think to yourself, why would a person do this? What is in the mind of a person that would do this thing? And I think that, that Great Balls, in fact, addresses this pretty well because it talks about what might have been in their minds in several instances. Interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. So around the middle of the movie when uh, when Jerry's commercial fortunes start rising and even when um, he goes and hears the song a whole lot of shaking going on we start to realize that this isn't like this is like uh, fantasy 1950s like this is like the same universe as Greece there's mm -hmm. like poodle skirts oh, yeah. and dancing teenagers and friendly greasers and uh you know even at the black club it's all just like choreographed dancing and yep. uh they don't even need yeah. microphones uh because <laughs> it's like it's like a stage musical basically yes yeah. definitely <laughs> there's there are definitely definite musical theater vibes and i mean at one point there is just a blatant song and dance number where Jerry shows up at the high school and is singing his own song and the teenagers run out and start doing this choreographed dance again in the seemingly yeah. like this isn't Greece like we aren't expecting songs greasers, to just come out of reality the but, greasers open up the hood of his car and are like oh yeah around with the engine <laughs> yeah I noticed that and and they are they are they are depicted from the rear so they throw open the hood of Jerry Lee's car and stick their heads in to look at his engine and point their asses straight at the camera, which they are continuing to, to shake to the tune, to the tune of Jerry's excellent single, High School Confidential. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, they were wearing Levi's because you you know you can see those little red tabs wiggling. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad we covered that because that scene is so bananas, but um kind of rewinding it a, a, a tiny bit. Um so again, whole lot of shaking going on is sort of his big. One of his first big hits, along with Crazy Arms, um, he plays on the Steve Allen show where we see Elvis 
watching from his bedroom, like watching, we see a lot of people up for at their home, you know, in their homes watching. Especially as Elvis got shamed by Steve Allen and like took that anger to his grave. Do you guys know who played Steve Allen in this movie? Steve Allen. That's right, Steve Allen as himself. Yes. The the incident of, um, of, of Jerry Lee playing that song on the Steve Allen show and like tossing his, his piano stool back behind him and Steve Allen like picking up some furniture and just chucking it back is is real. That happened, and you can watch the the, the footage of it. Uh, that that's cool. I, I, it He's, seemed like slapstick comedy in the movie, you know, like uh, yeah. Steve was Steve was always down. He's an extremely hip guy, and 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 he decided, well, as long as we're destroying some property here, what the fuck? I'm Steve Allen. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that is probably why why Jerry Lee and Myra named their first child Steve Allen Lewis. Yeah. But so, but that That's is great. funny too. Though. So yeah, we see Elvis is in bed with a girl, and mm-hmm. she gets up and starts dancing to it. But also, um, so when Elvis was on the Steve Allen show, he performed "Hound Dog," and Steve Allen made him sing it to a basset hound. To his dog at basset hound, yeah. Yeah, and Elvis <laughs> hated that. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> That's Tough great. Shit, yeah. Oh, so. So, so around that, also, so you know, uh, before we start getting into the the gross uh, sex and marriage stuff, we, we other scenes from uh, Jerry Lee's rise. Uh, he's uh, he has uh, sharing a bill with Chuck Berry, and he wants to go on after Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry is played by a lookalike who does not speak. He does not speak at all, nor do we hear his music. Yeah, zero lines, zero nothing. So uh, Chuck Berry's contract states that he has to headline. So Jerry Lee goes on before him and uh, lights a fucking grand piano on fire. And I was watching that. I wanted to be like, ah, Jerry Lee, what a waste. But it's like pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It's totally, it's totally crazy. But again, in my notes, it says burning the piano is cool. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't want to think that. And then I also I thought, wow, the killer, cool ass nickname too. A real incident. He burnt he burned a piano. That that happened. That's no exaggeration. Chuck Berry if Chuck Berry had to go on after that, if that I'm sure these are like two separate incidents that got amalgamated, but sure. you, you can't burn the equipment before somebody else has to play. It's probably true. And let me also say, um, you can look up a great interview with little little Richard from seventy-three or seventy-two when he was playing in London and they interviewed him before and there was also a controversy there about how Chuck Berry insisted on going last and Little Richard was like this is preposterous when I'm done nobody's gonna want to even see him. Interesting. It's a great interview and you can look it up. R.I.P. Little Richard. That's great. Black rock and roll pianist lives matter. Let me just say. Yes. Um, I do want to bring up um, part of Jerry Lee's rise in his rise to uh, fame and some fortune is his first big paycheck that he gets is a $40,000 paycheck that because of some questionable contract negotiations with his um, cousin and manager and bass player and father-in-law, JW, it is being split with JW, but they never really address that. It's like never really a problem that JW kind of screws him out of um, half of his money. But so now he's 
kind of a big shot. He's like walking around with this $40,000 check. And in a great scene, he takes Myra out to ice cream. And at the creamy cup. At the creamy cup. And the girls are all fawning over Jerry Lee. Um, and he takes out his check and he's like, can you make change with $40,000? And they all freak out and they give him the ice cream for free. So there you go, folks. <laughs> I yeah, thought Myra paid. No, Myra didn't pay. She tried. She tried. She, she like pulled a, a dollar out of her out of, out of her Bobby sock, right? She's like, "Here's, she can take it out of this," and they're like, "You don't have to pay." Yeah. <laughs> but then also around here, we we uh, you know we see adult Jimmy Swagger, Alec Baldwin, looking astonishingly handsome. I always forget because it's just been so like puffy and husky. For yeah, I was just saying to Ryan, or Ryan and I were talking about him last night. I feel like Alec Baldwin and Tom Hanks are two actors who have fallen victim to fat face and their big head. Just big, big old heads. The two of them. <laughs> There's a joke of 30 Rock. Skinny heads. There's a joke of 30 Rock where Tina Fey sees what is supposed to be a picture of young Jack Donaghy. It's like, oh my God. That's kind of how I felt watching this <laughs> movie. But um, yeah, so uh, Alec Baldwin is, again, they're mostly as a, a kind of like a plot device. He gives Jerry Lee a uh, coin that will symbolize the choices he can choose between, I guess, God and the devil or something. Jerry Lee doesn't, clearly doesn't agonize about it when Alec Baldwin's not, a lot, not around. He just mm -hmm. always makes the evil decision every single time, basically. Sure. Well, it's like not even a problem for him. He never has like a moral, we never see him do any moral questioning whatsoever. No, no, he doesn't, he has no conscience. Yeah, I don't know guys, because it's, we, we see him in, in like a variety of, of dilemmas and he always deliberately chooses the, the path of Satan. Like but it never again. seems to be a difficult decision. Like he's yeah, never like pontificating. The, there's no. no struggle with this faith. I don't know why he's carrying around with a coin, <laughs> except to remind him to do evil whenever possible. To do possible. the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> usually, usually with usually with a with he, he says yeah out loud when he does it. Yeah. There's, in the scene in the um, the rebel room, the uh, the world the world's toughest nightclub. Mm-hmm. Um, uh Jerry like, oh, Lee. we can't play that that negro music or something yeah yeah so so they're bombing and everyone's kicking each other's asses and stuff all over the club and it's like awful and jerry lee's like let's play that shaking song and i believe the drummer yeah i think played by mojo nixon yes speaking of star casting cast, yep is like uh we can't play that n-word music here these rednecks will lynch us it's like are you are you crazy he says and jerry lee he answers the direct question in the affirmative. He says, yeah. <laughs> and, and they do it and it goes over and, and the lady dances in a fringy outfit and we get to see her uh, photographed through Dennis Quaid's crotch. Like That's he, a great he, shot. That's the best he, part. He yeah, he's his got his leg up, up on the piano bench. And, and the camera just, goes yeah. down. Sticking real low. And it's like it's like yeah, she's dancing, and there's and there's Dennis Quaid's Brundle right there. It's amazing. Yeah, it's like a weird spin on the graduate shot. Um. So, uh, so uh, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 Phillips brothers, uh, knowing that Jerry Lee is a sociopath, maniac, criminal, mm -hmm. think that he's going to get into less trouble if they have him living with his cousin and family. Mm -hmm. um, so, God. So there's a scene where uh, it's the family 
uh, JW, his wife, Myra and Jerry Lee are watching television and it's a program about uh, the H-bomb. And uh, when JW and wife go to bed, like Myra starts talking about like, you know, existential kind of insecurities and fears that she has as a 13 year old growing up in the Cold War. She's in her PJs and uh, Jerry Lee just kind of like preys upon her fear and insecurity and it's just really, really gross. Yeah, it's around this time that they have their first kiss and the last thing that Myra says before they kiss is, I don't even know what hydrogen is. Yeah, this brings me to one of the other, the other like thematic elements that I, that I counted in this movie and that is bubble gum. Mm. Yeah, it's both Myra and Jerry Lee are snapping gum constantly. Constantly, they're, they're, they're chewing gum, and and the gum oh, represents milk. the gum represents uh, especially Jerry Lee's, but I think everybody's libido, right? Well, so yeah. so you will notice when Jerry Lee walks into the Sun Records office and sees like the like the sexy receptionist at yes. Sun. She's fun. Like a little bubble pops right in front of him. It's like howdy there, and. Um, Let's see, when else? There's, he's chewing gum in the scenes, in the scene where he's playing the piano for Myra and her friends who stop by the house. Yep. And he, and he like chases them with the piano and corners them in the corner of the room playing the piano and chewing gum. And, yeah, and then Myra's chewing gum and drinking milk when they're uh, sitting together on the couch, which is disgusting. Yep. And yeah, they're, they're chewing gum watching the TV show about the H-bomb, after they have that conversation where they're like, I'm afraid of, of dying in a nuclear war. I think that's terrible. I don't want to die without having ever lived. I think they're chewing gum there, but they might not be. They're yeah. chewing gum when they watch the bomb movie. And I'll tell you two things that blowing a, 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 a gum bubble and popping it resembles. Um, one thing it resembles is uh, tumescence and detumescence, which is why I feel that this represents the libido of the human <laughs> being. And doesn't it also represent the explosion of an atom bomb? Yes, man, so, this is this is yeah, this is a this brilliant is why we dissection. Do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so every time somebody is either horny or afraid of dying in in a nuclear holocaust, we see we see the explosion, we see the inflation and, and deflation of, of the bubble gum. Yeah. As I mentioned a, a couple of years ago in a, in a conversation with Kathleen, the, some of this movie takes place in 1958, which in the United States was the peak year for teenage pregnancy in the United States. Also the year my mom graduated high school. Hmm. Yeah. So like, yeah, people were waiting until they got out of high school to have a family, right? Which sounds a little strange now, but it's all over the culture. If everybody talks about it, it's like once we're out of high school and we're 18, we can get married and start making babies. Mm-hmm. What people did. Okay. And it's too dumb. That no, that's great. That's great. Um, so it's right around this time that he proposes to Myra en route to the wedding chapel. She's in the car, Picks not her knowing up from where they're going. Picks <laughs> yeah. her up yeah. from school to tell her that he's driving her to get married which she is clearly 
not 100% on board with. One of the <laughs> many utterances of, but I'm only 13. Yeah. This, oh, God, she's like, can't we just wait three or four years? <laughs> Why do we have to do this right uh, now? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, God. And then also, subsequently, Jerry Lee's like, like, yeah, don't worry, I'll tell JW. Does not do it. Yeah, and she keeps reminding him, like, you have to tell my family. I'm going to tell them. And he's like, no, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. Doesn't um, Did he pick her up from the, the high school confidential dance number to go directly to Arkansas and get married? Maybe. This is the second time he came to pick her up. It's oh, okay. I, right. It's the next thing in my notes. But yeah, they go to, on the same day. Yeah. They go to um, Mississippi, get married in a wedding chapel there. Um, the, the soundtrack is the song Patricia by Perez Prado, which has become sort of a trope in movies um, when people want to depict like the false optimism and, and hollowness of 50s America. Interesting. Patricia is kind of a go-to song. kind of a stock thing it's in a lot of movies the, yeah. the only one that comes to mind off the top of my head is homer simpson humming it while he puts on cologne to go like meet uh meet this lady that he's, that he's seeing behind marge's back in a scene from the simpsons <laughs> it's, it's kind of like uh using gimme shelter when you're talking about uh you know vietnam yeah absolutely and this song also has this movie also has in it um Last Night by the Marquise, which is uh, definitely a song that's in many, many soundtracks and didn't come out till 1961. So and, uh, that case, I, they kind of blew Negative it. points for... Well, we got one Elvis Presley song on there. We got one. Uh, we got Ike Turner on the soundtrack, too, just because... The Kings of Rhythm are in there with Delta 88. Yeah. Um, there was one song that was brand new to me in the soundtrack that I didn't know, which is the, the Wailers playing a beat guitar, which is, is indeed historical... The whalers were um, the Pacific Northwest whalers. Yeah, it, it's it's them. Um, they're they're awesome. I don't know how many people in Memphis were listening to the the, the fabulous whalers, but I'm pretty sure. That, yeah, in 1957 <laughs> or whatever, but that's fine. Um, so suffice to say, uh, J. W. Brown finds out that his cousin has married his daughter, his 13 year old daughter, secretly. Um, he goes to Sun Records with a gun. I just think this is really, this is dark but funny. He walks in the office, the like secretary babe goes like, ah, and he goes, shut up. <laughs> and then of yes. course, uh, he's, he and Jerry Lee are pressured to bury the hatchet in the name of making money. Yep. Yep. That's why it's so important that, that, that the contract includes JW getting 50% is, yeah. is, is that like he has to balance, he has to figure out whether he's going to let his, his cousin marry his daughter based on whether or not he wants to make a lot of money without having a lot of talent off of somebody else. Right. By the way, did, did you notice in the scene where JW's picking up his gun and going down to Sun Records, his little three-year-old son is walking around in a cowboy hat with a six-shooter, a plastic six-shooter? 
intergenerational cycles of violence, man. Yeah. Uh, everyone at Sun and anyone with the Jesus man their shoulders uh, is like, well, it's really inappropriate for Jerry Lee, uh, who is possibly not even divorced, to be marrying his 13-year-old cousin. Mm -hmm. So let's try to keep that quiet. Which, <laughs> again, is not the best response to a situation like that. But apparently it's a much bigger deal over in England. Yes. Well, before that, though, before that, let's talk about uh, Myla oh, being, being no. ripped, ripped away from her childhood. Oh, God. <laughs> it's so rough. I mean, it's out in the open now. Her parents know. So what is a child bride to do but move in with her adult cousin husband? God, and she packs, packs up her dollhouse. Packs awful. up her dollhouse. Her dollhouse is her suitcase. Um, and, and that's my other theme is the dollhouse. Ooh. Incidentally, um, the dollhouse keeps coming up. Um, in at the at the first time that Jerry Lee and Myra meet, she's she walks into her own house carrying a comic book, on the back of which is an advertisement for a little pink dollhouse with a little blue door. You have to look close to catch Great it. Great eye it's, for detail. Wow. And um, so and and of course she talks about how her aspiration in life is to have a little pink house with a little blue door that's just like her dollhouse. Um, incidentally, Jerry Lee also reads a comic book that represents his aspiration in life. When they go to Sun Studios, he's carrying an issue of Superman. Great. Right, okay, so. Yes, <laughs> 1950s comic books, it's, yeah, Americana. Yeah. So, so Myra says that she wants a little pink house with a little blue door. She says that when she's talking about how she's afraid of the hydrogen bomb. It happens to exactly resemble the dollhouse that she has. And when Jerry is is formally moving into her bedroom at her house and Myra is being like pushed out to some other room of the house, she packs her things to move from room to room in her the little doll. pink dollhouse with a yeah. little blue door. And and the same happens when she moves out of the house with her new husband, Jerry Lee. She packs <laughs> packs all her stuff in the little blue dollhouse. And Gosh. and they get in the car and they drive right to a brand new pink house with and a blue door. On the way, they drive by Graceland where women are crying. Yeah. Everywhere because he had just been drafted. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, then they they go to their new house. Oh, and then one of my, I really loved this scene. Um, to the song "Breathless," we see Myra going shopping for house appliances, accoutrement for the home and she is just tossing dollar bills left and right flouncing around it is like such a weird scene seeing a 13 year old well going then, shopping for those items on a shopping spree. come home and she's just crying in the kitchen like i don't know how to be a wife i'm only 13 she says I'm it only, again i'm only 13 years old that's one yes. thing yeah also just <laughs> Excited note when they're playing when you see them recording or playing Breathless. Uh, it's funny to see John Doe doing that because X covered Breathless earlier in the 80s. Is that true? A great cover of it. Yes, it's on the soundtrack of the Richard Gere remake of Breathless, which is directed by this director, Jim McBride. Did not realize that. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay, well, that makes sense because. It, that movie is full of 1950s rock and roll in the soundtrack. Richard Gere's, char Richard Gere's character is obsessed with rock and roll and comic books. There and he uses the Silver Surfer as a metaphor. So clearly. I got to see this. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. You actually, you should. It's it's regarded as bad because it's not nearly as good as you know the original. But I, it has all to make. I don't know why it's not like a more popular '80s cult movie. Except. Oh wait, this is a this is a remake of Godard's *Obusuk oh, yeah. Breathless*. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. About <laughs> the souffle, as I like to call it. <laughs> on top on top of souffle. Yeah. That's, yes. uh, <laughs> that's um, a very necessary remake. All right. Fine. Yeah, all right. No. <laughs> I can do this better. Uh, but really, I bring that up mostly to uh, momentarily delay the part where we have to talk about the uh, shockingly graphic sex scene. Yes. Uh, which it goes on way too long. It's just like, yeah, too explicit. And uh, Jerry Lee, midway through having sex with this 13-year-old wife, stands up angrily and says you don't move like no virgin and then feeling sorry for himself goes to sit by himself at a bar and play piano where elvis comes to concede to him that he is the king poor fucking guy that's, yeah um incidentally that's the other the other line that i remember from seeing this movie as a teenager was was what jerry lee says to myra as he climbs off off of her angrily you it is it like is no virgin. deeply yeah. disturbing it's like Very one of those upsetting. scenes where it's the tone is kind of is very aggressive to begin with and then for yeah. him to turn it around and she has to apologize to him like oh it didn't mean nothing and right and um i mean that's that's the thing about this movie is as you said a lot of it is in like the greece universe but mm -hmm. that that scene is not no yes i don't think i, I mean I, I if i've ever seen any of greece i turn it on immediately i turn it off immediately because it sucks so bad but I, yeah, I'm pretty you're sure you're a true devotee of the '50s, '60s, not this, not this yeah. bullshit '70s, '50s. Yeah, exactly. But that that scene is like genuinely disturbing. It's yeah, distracting it's to, very to watch upsetting. This. Very yeah, bad. and one I of should... the things, an issue I've noticed in some of the other movies we're watching, we've been watching as well, where we see these characters do horrible things, and they're depicted as horrible, but then there's no like recourse for it. There's no reckoning. But I think a lot of that is because Jerry Lee Lewis continued to be a fucking maniac for like through the present day. Like he did never have a recognition. It's not like Jerry Lee Lewis learned a lesson from any of this. Right. So I think I, I, I don't know. It's it's sort of like he he sort of is depicted as getting some comeuppance, but but he perseveres in doing what what is his nature despite it like yeah. check this out okay when myra gale brown uh when when she talked about the whole scandal uh of when they went to england and and and, and jerry's career went in the tank for a while and so on and so forth what she said that was yeah it was it was really difficult uh and painful to go through that but it, it did it did strengthen our relationship is what myra said um and it's not hard to see this movie as like a as as uncomfortable and as as like, like morally ambiguous as it is it's depicted as a movie about about where like in the end love between two people triumphs which, yeah. is, which is like not something that you want to say or you want to see in it, but it is what's shown. And, right. and at least for a minute there, that is probably what the actual people represented felt about it. 
right. including Myra. Yeah, and this is, again, it's only depicting 18 months in these yeah. people's lives. So uh, they're, they're like the Phillips brothers, they're like, hey, be cool with this child bride shit. That's not going to fly in England the way it does in the U.S. Right, but Jerry Lee doesn't give a fuck because he loves her, he says. He's like, this is what we're doing, and, if, and yeah. if this conflicts with anything else in the world, then fuck them. Right, and the label blatantly does not want her to go to England, and he <laughs> insists that she does, and then he says, we'll say she's 15. That'll be all right, won't it? And they're like, no. <laughs> no, no man. Yeah. <laughs> but um, then there's the scene where they're, they're playing in England, and uh, the audience is like half empty and just there to uh, to yell at him. Well, we should note that it's upon his, upon his arrival, that Myra tells the press that they're like, who are you? And she's like, well, I'm his wife. And so yeah. that's what really- somebody, somebody asked Jerry Lee, are, are you married to this girl? And what does he say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also the, the arrival at the yes. airport, the arrival at the airport has, has in it the, the one-liner that makes the entire movie, which is um, Peter Cook as, as the journalist. Yep is there with another journalist. Yeah, I love those and, guys. And Peter Cook says to him, they're, they're hanging out in this airport with a bunch of teenagers and all this bullshit. And it's like a big rigmarole and they don't like it. And Peter says, I hate covering these arrivals. And the other guy says, didn't hear you complaining when it was Liberace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Such subtle character development. <laughs> I guess I grab the uh, charger for my phone one second. Oh, sure, go for computer. it. <laughs> we, we can pause for a moment. Oh, you don't have to do that because I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to backtrack for a second while, All right, while, while he's away, which is that after, after the, um, the sex scene, I guess we're going to call that, um, Jerry Lee goes to play the piano, sadly, at the Sun Studio. That's right. Elvis, Elvis shows up to, in, his, in his army fatigues to, to act all, all sad at the Sun Studio. But why was he there? He he wasn't on Sun Records for like two years by then. They sold him to RCA. It's like he was like coming by some place where he used to work. What's up with that? Yeah, well, okay, but I don't know if that's entirely historically inaccurate necessarily because again with he the, didn't live there, right? He still lived the, in Memphis. Yeah, in the um the million dollar quartet, when that happened, he wasn't on Sun anymore either. He was just like that's popping true. in with his girlfriend at the time. So Back from the army, may as well see if anybody's at my old office at like two in the yeah. morning. Yeah, <laughs> that's, what I do. that's a good point. That is a good point. The hour. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit like um, it's it's a it's like a somewhat ridiculous contrivance, the same way as the audience in England that apparently bought tickets, came to the auditorium, sat there to have a shitty time, and boo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? Though? They they burn them so good when they roll the pram onto stage while it's yeah. playing piano. Yes. That's a, that's a very good burn. Yeah, <laughs> they're yelling "Cradle Robert, go back to America," and that is yeah, a, yeah. the cherry <laughs> on top. So to speak. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, God. Then he gets back to his hotel room, and oh, uh, there's like there's a an ice bucket with a cold bottle of milk in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we see like right there. We see Jerry Lee drinking. He drinks the milk. He drinks uh, milk instead of whiskey, and you'll notice. Uh, they sneak him out of the hotel through the back alley. And as they're spotted by a bunch of uh, London teeny boppers, he pulls the chewing gum out of his mouth and tosses it. So he's, he's acting out a certain amount of contrition here by drinking milk and throwing away his bubble gum, which 
which represents his nuclear annihilation libido. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good point, so, Matt. I'm I'm loving this. So we we see his his uh, commercial fortunes decline and mostly in montage fashion. Uh, yep. J.W. Brown quits the band. Can't say I blame him. Uh, plays smaller <laughs> rooms. Uh, gets loses his son contract or something. And, and he doesn't uh, he doesn't lose it, but they do ask him him, him to apologize. And okay, yeah. that's when he has the line of like, you see this hand? It makes five thousand dollars a night. You see this hand it makes another it does too. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I shine like gold when I play the piano. Yes. Yes. So and good. And incidentally, oh, it's true. He it's does. true. It's true. Yeah. It is like a portrait of unshakable ego. It is truly mm -hmm. Truly uh, remarkable. Um, in this portion, there's a there's a montage that is the inverse of a prior montage. Where earlier on, yeah. we see we see Jerry Lee driving around town. All the, the all the teenagers at the Creamy Cup are cheering for him. The high school kids are cheering for him. There's some some civil rights marchers uh, who are black people with signs. You assume that that's what they are. They cheer for him, and the cops are protecting them from a bunch of of dudes who look like they want to rough up these civil rights protesters, those guys are cheering for him, too. Um, and then, everyone loves Jerry Lee. Yeah, and then later on, he gets back from England, and everyone is apparently in exactly the same positions that they were in before. But this time, they are booing Jerry Lee, including, including the high school kids who are shaming him for marrying Myra, with whom they were dancing with Jerry Lee on the very same yeah. steps of the very same high school yeah. in a fire scene. Yeah, it's all very tidy. You know, they won't serve no. him ice cream anymore. Like, <laughs> your money's no good here, Louis. Right. Yep. Um, it's also around this time that we see we see Johnny Cash signing with Sun. Oh, I thought that was supposed to be Roy Orbison. Um, I thought it was Johnny Cash, but I could be wrong. It was not named. What did you think, Matt? Uh, I couldn't figure out who that was supposed to be. <laughs> he was dressed all in black, so I mean that's both Robertson and Johnny Cash. But he had big black coiffed hair and possibly sunglasses. So my money's on Orbison, but uh, you know, mm -hmm. that's yeah, uh, he's being he's being replaced. Um, is, is supplanted. That's the, yes, that's the visual the shorthand we get. I wrote down nice pram in my notes. Nice I thought that, was, that was a pretty sick burn. Sick burn. Dimension. Yeah, I, I have Pram, sick burn. And, um, <laughs> but uh, so <laughs> Jerry Lee starts getting, uh, 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 I mean, he's philandering and uh, uh, getting like physically abusive. And then it's like really fucked up scene. It's like when he goes to like hit her, she like, like excitedly, defiantly tells him, it's like, you can't hit me anymore because I'm pregnant. He doesn't even listen. He, he, he thinks he, do, he doesn't hear what she said. I think it was right. what happens, and, and she, he, Jerry Lee thinks that she's trying to just make him feel bad and guilty, and so on and on and on. Doesn't realize that that she's just told him that she's pregnant with Steve Allen Lewis. <laughs> and when he when he does internalize this, it's all about Jerry Lee. Like, well, who's going to take care of me? Uh, yep. Yeah, he, he fucking just... like cries and like collapses in her arms and stuff. So around this time, so okay, we're getting to the the very end of the movie, and it's sort of like a last ditch effort to improve his life. Um, Jerry Lee and Myra go to a service held by his cousin Jimmy Sh Jimmy Swaggart, and it was during the altar call that 
Jimmy offers him like this one, you know, last chance at redemption to become saved. And well, first he gives an entire sermon about how shitty his cousin is. Yes. Which, which, <laughs> which also leads yeah, us to he be just like, sits there and takes it. Yeah. Like another question of like, why, why are you in the audience for this? Because it's just your cousin insulting you. Dude, yeah. Going to church sucks. It really does. <laughs> right. And then when he's put on the spot and asked, you know, do you want to do right by God? He says no. And that he says, if he's going to go to hell, he's going to go there playing the piano. If I'm going to hell, I'm going there playing the piano. God bless. Very him. cool thing to say. Extremely cool. Thing uh, very to say. cool thing to say. So mm -hmm. I was just reading, I have this book of essays by Nick Kent and um, Nick Kent interviewed I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis around this time, around the time that the movie was coming out. And um, he has a little blurb about Jimmy swaggered at this time that I guess he did rise to fame as a TV evangelist, but when this still movie, alive, yeah. Yeah, but when this movie was coming out, he was sort of like embroiled in a scandal. I guess he was like caught in a New Orleans red light Absolutely. district scenario. Um so I read up on but, it. But, it's complicated. But but why? I don't understand. Why what? Why was he running around with Isn't he a man of God? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well all that from what I was able to read about this, I guess a lot of these creatures from from the the church that he was with or the organization that he was with were all screwing around. But they it was just a matter of whether they were going to tell on each other. Oh, so, interesting. So somebody who had another preacher who had previously been disgraced went and got himself a camera with a telephoto lens and like staked out Swagger oh. and, and busted him. Basically, like the plot of the righteous gemstones, also. And and, oh, and Swagger Swagger gave a whole tearful confession that I vividly remember seeing clips of as as a child, where he talked about how he sinned against God and his tears coming down his face and everything. He never actually said what he did about it. I think everybody in the room just kind of knew. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's what happened. Anyway, so so you were saying about the blurb. Yeah, but so he was not he did not participate in the making of this movie at all. He was not an advisor, but I should note that Jerry Lee Lewis was an advisor and was present for most of the filmmaking, um, as was Sam Phillips, also an advisor, an advisor on this film. So, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that's probably part of why, uh, you know, uh, we get such a rosy portrait. Oh, but he and, ended up uh, hating the movie. He okay, liked well, Dennis Quaid's you, performance, but he did not like the movie. No, nobody does. If he, so one thing that I, I found interesting, the way this movie was made in 1989 is a salacious little showbiz tale with the nostalgic 1950s with the beloved prestige entertainer. If this was made in the last like 20 years, you know, it would have gotten like the prestige drama like he jerry lee would be like an anti-hero somebody who struggled with his faith and wanted to do right but uh was obsessed with marrying children and shooting mm -hmm. guns and stuff but uh i guess it's just uh it's a testament to the fact that uh attitudes regarding uh child brides have really come a long way since the, since the late 80s That's for sure. i just i don't think that you would depict this same kind of story so like in such a glib uh you know like fantastic manner right like the tone is very much one of sort of a farce and 
even the way, I mean, I also like Dennis Quaid's performance as Jerry Lee, but it's very cartoonish. Like he's constantly like popping out his eyes and like raising mm, his eyebrows yeah. and yeah. kind of flipping his hair. And he's very much like a, almost like a comic book character in a way. That, that was his personality. I, I should say that um, the, okay. So first of all, the, the, the biography of Jerry Lee that I read some years ago was a book called Hellfire by Nick Toshes and Grail Marcus. Ah, uh, I did see that come up. Yes. I looked all over my my bookshelves to find my copy, but I think what happened was that the prose in it was so highfalutin ridiculous that I got rid of it because it was such a dumb book. You know what? <laughs> I did the same. I did the same thing with the Grail Marcus. I was just like, God, I used to enjoy these things on the, like primal <laughs> level. <laughs> so. One um, thing, one thing that I read that that I took away from that book um, was that the Jerry Jerry Lee's family in Louisiana were, as he as the character said in the movie, they were all getting married extremely young and divorcing and marrying again and just doing it over and over and over, and 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 the way that the way that he went through, he was on his third wife at age twenty three was not unusual in his milieu at all. So, so I think that's too many. Uh, sure, but the, the, the depiction of, of Jerry Lee being unfamiliar with, with that being unacceptable socially or otherwise is yeah. genuine. And also, I, I, I didn't look into this any further, but in the essay that I read, Jerry Lee is quoted as talking about JW as his like first cousin, tw like, twice or something like like he's his first cousin in like two different twice removed not oh, twice in, removed in but two different directions in two different directions yeah, like twice me. over i think it was like first cousin twice over maybe something like that which maybe. i cannot i cannot uh my brain can't wrap itself around Still. the logistics yeah. of that but great yeah um, you know what i think i might have a couple of those actually because because my dad's first wife is the brother of of my aunt Judy's husband. So like it's a it's a pair of siblings that got married. Okay. So, so technically if you if you want to draw it out, I have like this infinite cascade of, of cousins because it's recursive. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. There there you go. That thing not, not that I know that that's the situation with, with Jerry Lee, but like But is one such sure. relationship that could um mm -hmm. spawn a, a first cousin twice over yeah um, something like that but so just really quick i guess at the very very end of the movie um we love it we love our postscripts okay and, yeah, i mean i got some, oh, yeah. some more hopelessly inadequate like <laughs> title cards up at the end there yeah i think there's what there's a blurb about myra right like uh, it, it says steve allen lewis was born in 1959 or eight or whatever Yep, oh. and, then and then the second thing we see is Jerry Lee Lewis is playing his heart out somewhere in America tonight. Yep, that's <clears> it. It really looked like so that the closing the closing musical number is Jerry Lee in some club. It's it's Dennis Quaid as Jerry Lee in some club playing a wild child. Wild one. Wild one. I'm a wild one. Um, I really got the sense that that was like left over from some other part of the movie because I couldn't figure out, <laughs> I couldn't figure out why it was why it was last. It, it just seemed like maybe there was some other sequence where that was supposed to go. Um, Ryan, do you have the substance report? Substance uh, use report? Uh, okay, actually, yeah, yeah. So let let's see. Uh, substance abuse report. Um, whiskey, fair amount of whiskey, and then, whiskey. Um, he. 
I don't, at, near the end when he's uh, lying to Myra on the telephone, uh, he like spills a bottle of amphetamines, I think, on the bed. Just pills. Oh yeah, there but, were uh, some pills. Um, but bizarrely, few people even smoke cigarettes in this movie, which actually seems probably incorrect. But that doesn't seem right, does it? Yeah. So whiskey, whiskey, and a couple pills. Um, we got we got some good stunt casting in here. As we mentioned, there was Steve Allen appearing as himself. I think John Doe as J.W. Brown qualifies. Mojo Nixon. Mojo Nixon. Great That's scene. Him. And then um, this, I did. I only got this from watching the credits. Uh, the guy who replaces J.W. Brown, John Doe in the band, is Memphis musician Tav Falco. Really? Tav Falco's Panther Burns. Mm. Um, Alex Chilton played uh, bass in that band at one point. Oh, uh, no shit. Yeah, he's a cool dude, still going. Played Somerville last year. If you watch the Big Star documentary, there's a great clip of them playing on some square daytime talk show. Really yes, cool. and Alex Chilton is introduced as Axel Chitlin. Yeah. You know okay. something? We talked about that. <laughs> a, a good friend of mine just sent me this book of essays about power pop. And, <gasps> and I was, uh, I, I, you know what? <clears throat> oh, it's called Go All the Way, of course, right? <laughs> So I'm reading through it and and over and over again, the authors of these essays keep referring to this song that I don't know by Big Star called September Girls as like the what? ultimate power pop song. You don't song. know that song? You don't know that song? What are you doing? That's they're one of the greatest Memphis bands there is. So <laughs> You would love that song. So I was like, okay, I mean, power pop's great, fun time, good music. So uh, so I, I should check this out. So I looked it up. I thought it was, I think I had it confused with 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 one by Guided by Voices. So I looked up September Girls and I listened to it. I'm like, yeah. So I looked it up and I listened to it. I'm like, this is some fucking weak shit. And I have not read any more of that book since. <laughs> they are one of those bands that people love to like revere as like underdogs. Like they never made it and they should have. And they're good, but I, I will the say hype it's a little. Extreme. I will. I will not say, admit that I do not think big big star is overhyped. But I will say. I think that it takes a few listens. This is a man that can definitely sound just like, you know, like slick early seventies, like dudes and jeans, but um, mm -hmm. give it a couple of listens, particularly actually, yeah, all three records, listen to them a million times and you'll be really happy, I promise. I'm not coming to Power Pop to get sad, unless it's Badfinger, in which case, how can you not be sad about Badfinger? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. The All biography right. influences. Yeah. More big star for me. I was texting somebody about how much I love <laughs> the, the record with that song yesterday. Um, uh, okay, but let's let's kind of get back to get back to the back movie to that we were talking about. I have a few more things I want to say, um, and I'd love to hear your final thoughts as Please. well. So, yeah, I mentioned that Jerry Lee served as an advisor on this movie, and like some of the details in this essay were cracking me up. Um, I guess he was just kind of obviously sort of a nightmare and terror on set. There, he allegedly uh -huh. brought a gun that he held up to the producer a couple different times. No surprise there. No surprise. Mm. And um, I guess like during press junkets, he was really hostile to, to journalists. And in one case, was just muttering, I don't like you. I don't like you. I don't like you under his breath, which is <laughs> just great. Like vaguely Trumpian, but um, uh, yeah, so I thought that was amusing. Um, but I also wanted to just touch upon the 
parts of Jerry Lee's life that kind of came after this movie that the movie did not cover and just all of the insanity in like the 70s and 80s. Um, oh boy, it's plenty of this, man. Plenty of this. I mean, he drove through the gates of Graceland oh. on one occasion because he remembered while being out drunk one night, he was like, oh yeah, I think Elvis asked me to come over like a while ago and I should probably do it right now. Oh, and my friend uh -huh. just happened to just give me a gun. So drives to Graceland, they won't let him in. He drives through the gates. He- I'm Jerry Lewis. <laughs> throws a bottle of champagne, not realizing that the windows are rolled up. So it smashes inside the car onto him. And they obviously <laughs> call the police and are like, you need to leave. That's fair. Yes. <laughs> that rules. <laughs> yes. So I wanted to bring that up. Um, also, he played the Grand Ole Opry in 1973 for the first and last time. And this is kind of when he, again, has made the pivot to country music. And he is on the country charts, but he totally ignored the allotted time constraints of, you know, just play for a few minutes. And he played for um, 40 minutes, including a lot of his rock and roll um hits and he signed off with the killer is number one and i am a rock and roll motherfucker hell yeah and from the opera he's kind of like a rite of passage though for uh for bad boys sure what else sure. you got you got any more oh oh and then just like a, on another occasion again so as the movie briefly showed he did get into amphetamines pretty heavily in like the 70s and 80s and on one occasion, and this is documented in the episode of um, Tales from the Tour Bus about Jerry Lee Lewis, the Mike Judge show. But yeah, so he had a party in Memphis at his like old studio, which was basically just like an empty office room. And he keeps his party goers up for like days on it and on uh, drugs and coke and whatever. And okay. as people are like starting to fall asleep a couple days into this party, yep. um, he started shooting a gun at the ceiling to wake everybody up and continue partying. Which <laughs> must be a horrifying way to wake up from a very hungover. Oh yeah. <laughs> Super. Um, yeah. Let's see. I, that's gonna, I think, um, this list of the, the various sins and crimes and outrages of Jerry Lee Lewis, I think, leads us directly into what is what is this movie about and what is its main theme. Yes. I also, I also want to give a couple a couple song notes about incidental things like that that I discovered while while reading up and doing a little homework about this. Which one do you want first, the song notes or the or the the big theme talk? Song notes. You want the song notes? Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay. So first of all uh as we mentioned the this uh the soundtrack features in one scene the instrumental composition beat guitar by the fabulous whalers i didn't know it until i uh, looked it up in the credits it's fabulous and you should look it up and you should do a little dance to it um <laughs> i also looked up um i i was unaware that whole lot of shaking going on with somebody else's song it's a yeah i didn't know that either. big maybell right it's it's big maybell and her version is rather toned down from Jerry Lee's, there's a lot more lyrics. Jerry Lee, I don't think, bothered to learn all the words, which makes sense given the presentation that he was doing of it. I also learned that Big Maybell's only chart hit uh, was in 1967, and she hit 96, number 96 on the charts with a cover of 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. That, wow. that is in hearing that. That it's great. <laughs> it is very good. I'm gonna totally look that up. Too many teardrops 
noticed there was a scene in which um, Jerry Lee was in Sam Phillips' office at Sun Studios, which is painted mauve, by the way. So he signed the same color as Jerry Lee's Cadillac that he bought was mauve. And, and, <laughs> and some of the uh, interior shots of his house, the, um, the extremely unpleasant sex scene was in a, a, a dark a dark room that was painted pink, so it, it all looked mauve too. Yeah, it must have been like in the the color palette that they yeah. decided on for the film. A anyway, so so Jerry Lee's uh, Sam and Jerry Lee are talking about Jerry Lee's talent and his hands, and he says his hands can heal the sick, raise the dead, make the little girls talk out of their heads, which is a line that I know from the song Seventh Son, which I thought was a Johnny Rivers original. It turns out it's not, and it uh, was performed by a guy named Willie Mabon, who is a pianist and singer and songwriter in the R&B genre, who, who recorded that song a couple years earlier. I, I think um, if you're really... Also, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Also a version of that by Mose Allison and one by, a uh, really good one by Dion, too. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot yeah. of seven songs. I've never heard any of them until today yeah. other than Johnny Rivers. I really like that Johnny Rivers song. Yeah, good too. If you, uh, I think, I think that that's kind of thrown in there to 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 emphasize the point that Jerry Lee is listening to black pianists. Yeah. Which of course he was, so that's how he would know a song by Willie Nevin. Um, I think that's the song notes. A lot of good tunes in the soundtrack, including at least one really great Jerry Lee ballad during his shame montage. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. How about your theme notes? I mean, I think. Um, uh Jerry Lee is he was he had a reputation he cultivated a reputation as sort of this being of a pure licentiousness and ego and libido that that he would never say no he always said yes to things like he like he says to Jimmy Swagger in the scene when Jimmy's telling him to to glorify God with his music and he says, well, God keeps saying, don't, don't, don't. And there's a voice in me that keeps saying, do, do, do. Yeah. And his, his repeated answers to questions with that, that, that yeah, that he says, where he says, yes. Yeah. I, I think the movie is talking to us about, about how we make heroes out of, out of people like that, out of licentious people. That's what rock and roll is about, is, is that liberty and that, and that freedom to act wild and just act out and, and, and obey your urges no matter what they are. Right. And it shows us, the movie kind of shows us how that works and it's beautiful and it's just glorious and it's liberating, but at the same time, it, it will wind up in something horrific and ugly that everyone regrets and becomes infamous in its in its in its awfulness, yeah, and that's what the film's about. And in addition to, to like psychologizing uh, with with the references to um, the hydrogen bomb and to people trying people desperate to make a quick buck, there's some social commentary in there that shows us what what would lead people 
who have, you know, maybe not the best of personalities to begin with to, to do these things that are even worse because they think that they're subject to nuclear holocaust and they are poor and they need money. <laughs> right. 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 So that's in there too. That's what the movie's about. And 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 it shows both the the excellence and the and the majesty and the beauty of of the performance of rock and roll the way that Jerry Lee did it. And it shows what are the consequences of having that ethic as your sole guiding principle of life. Yeah. No, I think that's a really great analysis. I think that sums it up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really I, does yeah. like showcase his complete lack of sort of introspection or I don't know, just he doesn't grapple with really anything or, or yeah. falter or question himself. It's just yeah. all ego, all um, well, action. I, I, I wrote a uh, I, I wrote a subtitle for this. I, I wrote Great Balls of Fire. One man's struggle against anti-piano bias, conventional and conventional attitudes regarding incest and pedophilia. That's a long subtitle. Are you sure that's not just the the are you sure that's not just the summary? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, any other final thoughts from you, Ryan? I don't have anything else to say about Great Balls of Fire. Great. I just want to say, Great Balls. Great yeah, Balls. Great Balls. Great Balls, guys. I don't think I referred to it as that one time. Me since neither. We, I just did we, right now, uh, decided we'd call it that at the very beginning of this. Discussion. Uh, I mean, we didn't really discuss it as a group whether or not we were going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen, you called it that in a text that you sent me like a week and a half ago. <laughs> I think you did it by accident, but I was like, that's it. <laughs> we're calling this movie. Great. Well, Matt, Matt, thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you so much. Your um, insight was incredible as as expected you're more than welcome i'm happy to talk about this or uh any other topics of uh oldies music and if i might say uh london england can kiss my ass hell yeah all right well thanks again and we'll be back in a week or so on rock and roll film club bye guys bye, bye.